there's almost never been a time, at least in recent history, when sitting at the intersection of national security and tech has been more important. You because stole my answer. I was, I was so <laughs> like What's up? I'm Tyler Sweat. Cue the dramatic music. This is All Quiet on the Second Front, a podcast where boring conversations around defense tech and national security come to die. Ready to get weird and learn some cool shit about emerging tech and the government? I thought so. Let's fucking go. This is a Soul Fire production. Hey everyone, Chrissy McGarry here, COO of Second Front Systems. Excited to share with all of you that you are now able to sign up for our annual Offset Symposium. Imagine attending the number one national security symposium located at the Ronald Reagan Building in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May 16th, 2023. During the symposium, you'll be able to hear from some of the leading experts in the defense tech space and VC communities. Individuals like Nund, the CTO of the CIA, and General Raymond, formerly of the Space Force, will be there participating in fireside chats and conversations. Don't worry, you can locate our full agenda at secondfront.com backslash offset dash symposium. Make sure you sign up today. Space is limited. What's up, nerds? I've got uh, Dylan and Sarah from Silicon Valley Defense Group here. Uh, I'm going to have a broad conversation today. Going to talk a little bit about you know, careers through public sector, through private sector, um, sort of got Dylan as a new entrant, got Sarah sort of a, an OG veteran. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about partners and allies, um, some of the challenges around international collaboration. Um, and we're going to talk about, you know, if the if defense is a viable uh, destination for the tech workforce and tech community. Um, I think there's some interesting conversations to have there. Um, so I'm gonna first turn to Sarah and you know, in the the minute or two intro, sort of who are you, how'd you get here, and uh, what are you up to right now? Yeah, um, so I guess brief overview of my career and how I got here is I graduated from Stanford in 2014. Um, ended up actually getting my job in the intelligence community immediately after my graduation, but it took them five to six years to clear me for that job. So in the meantime, I went um, and I worked for Apple for three years. So spent uh, two years in Cupertino working on uh, project management for the App Store and for Apple Music. And then Apple sent me to Singapore for a year to help launch uh, an international project management program that we were trying to launch. Came back from that quit, traveled for a year, which also partly explains why my clearance took so long. Um, and then uh, after traveling for a year in South America um, and in Israel, the West Bank, uh, Georgia, Armenia, and basically all of Eastern and Central Europe, um, moved to D.C., ended up getting a job with a tech lobbying firm for about a year um, where our focus was exclusively on tech clients. And then in March 2020, my clearance finally, finally came through. Even after the ayahuasca in South America? <laughs> yeah, all, no, after all of it. It's a good spirit animal. <laughs> um, and I, I started off um, as an analyst for the CIA in March 2020, which, as everyone is probably aware, is probably one of the worst times to start a new job. Could, could have been a worse time. <laughs> um, so I was there for about two years, really enjoyed it, loved the people there. Um, 
but also thought that government was not going to be a long-term play for me. So ended up starting to have some conversations to figure out what was next. Um, and then ended up getting connected with NATO and NATO, um, if, anyone's aware, is launching a venture capital fund, um, also launching an accelerator program. Um, so I jutted off to Brussels to help uh, be basically the deputy lead for the NATO Innovation Fund and was there, helped them uh, figure out some incentives and design for the fund, um, and then got back from that relatively recently and then got recruited to be the West Coast director of the Silicon Valley Defense Group. So I've been in the job for about a month and a half. Yeah. Uh, it's doing so, great already. Yeah, <laughs> quite new. Um, I like but, that it didn't take SVDG five years though to get no, you cleared for the job. No, definitely no, no. Yeah. Thankfully, they were a lot faster. Our, our vetting process is a little different than uh, <laughs> well, the government. The irony and Chrissy's giggling over here watching is like I got my clearance because someone asked me to be in a meeting in Afghanistan, and I was like, I'm not cleared for that building. And someone wrote a memo, and they were like, You're cleared now. And that's literally how I got. The clearance I've had. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, I was like, oh, this feels legit. Yeah. My, I, I like understand now, like, some of the reasons why it took so long. Like, I studied abroad in China when I was in college and then I went abroad. I wasn't going to ask. Look at yeah. you just volunteering. Yeah. yeah. And I went the abroad. <laughs> and I went abroad for two of those years. Um, sure. So there were some reasonings for the delay, but it, it was also like an absurdly long process. And I think they would, they would acknowledge that it was yeah, an absurdly ridiculous. long process. And I know that they're trying to cut down on that because that is, I know we're going to get to this later in the conversation, but when it comes to attracting talent to the government, like that's a major problem. Just the sheer amount of time that people have to wait. And then especially if you work in tech, which I had and which I like, I mean, like I went to Stanford. I know a lot of people who were comp sci majors and like who ended up immediately after graduation, getting a job at Google, that's basically paying almost like 200K. So it's like, why would you then put your life on hold to wait for three years to go and work for the government and make like 80K? Yeah, I remember when I was getting recruited coming out of Afghanistan, coming out of the military for a couple different organizations. And they're like, yeah, this is where you start. And I did the math and I was like, wait, I'm getting a pay cut? Yeah. <laughs> what just happened? I made more when I was 22 than I did when I was 29. And I mean, <laughs> not yeah. great, Bob. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you got Sarah there. Awesome story. Ridiculous journey. Um, very big to, to click into the spirit animal and learn more about that later. But Dylan, you know, in the other side of that spectrum, right, sort of new entrant coming in. Um, talk to me about sort of where you came from, what drew you in here and sort of what you're looking forward to, right? As you've got this whole, you know, awesome career ahead of you, um, what gets you excited about it? Yeah, so I've always been interested in politics, government, um, and on, on the side, I've always been a tech enthusiast, hobbyist, super interested in uh, how technology is influencing and changing our lives. So when I was in college, uh, I was basically trying to figure out how to marry those two things as best I could, and then figure out how to get someone to pay me for it. So um, I did some, re <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, that's the hard part. Um, I went to Rutgers University. Um, I did some research when I was there with a professor for a law review article about the intersection of public policy and technology. Um, I was also fortunate while I was at Rutgers to win the Truman Scholarship, which is a federal scholarship for students that have a demonstrated history of uh, public policy work uh, slash public service work and who are interested in potentially doing that as a career. 
So I was fortunate to win that scholarship. Uh, as part of that scholarship, they encourage you after you graduate from college to do a fellowship with either a government agency in the executive branch or a nonprofit that works with closely with the government. Um, SVDG was on that list of potential places to do the fellowship with. I had a previous stint when I was in college as a contractor for the Department of Transportation. Another policy area that I was really interested in and still am um, is transportation policy. I sit on the board of directors for a nonprofit called Students Against Destructive Decisions or SAD. So I was sort of deciding whether oh, it's not drunk driving anymore. It's not drunk driving. God, I feel old. In 19 Holy shit. I'll, I'll, I'll give you and it was no. I have to say cuz I'm on the board of directors, it was never drunk driving. It was students against driving drunk. There's a, a semantic difference between oh. those two different things. Feels that like a rabbit hole. Super rabbit hole. <laughs> um but they changed the name in 1997. So I was deciding whether to keep going down that um you know transportation policy thing or take a gamble on this very new startup-y nonprofit um, where I would come in as essentially the second employee actually yeah. working there uh, and do that instead. And as much as I love the folks at the DOT, it was, uh, you know, office, cubicle, government work. And I thought it'd be interesting to take it um, my first career step outside of government and see how that was. So did the fellowship with SVDG the summer after I graduated and then uh, got hired full time after that. Basically, yeah. Sam, uh, I think you had it on another episode, basically was like, you want to stay on full time? And I said, this is cool. I would love to stay on full time. Uh, and it's been it's been great ever since. So I'm going to go back to Dylan and I'm going to come back to you sort of on the, the tech talent. Okay. Right. Because you both I don't think I realized I was um, <clears throat> sort of sandwiched in between intellectual royalty here. <laughs> With Stanford and a Truman Scholar. <laughs> Jesus. Save some for the rest of us. Uh, but as you know, as you look, you know, Dylan, as you as you look across sort of like your demographic, right? Younger, entering the workforce, sort of digitally native, right? Like, mm -hmm. like I remember, I really didn't know what a computer was. You know, they were like, do you want to take computers at West Point? I was like, that's for dorks. <laughs> to no. take computers. Yeah, it was, it was like <laughs> IT 305. And it was like, you had to take apart a computer and put it back together was part of it. Oh, and, interesting. Okay. But I didn't, I don't think it wasn't, it wasn't something we grew up yeah. where like it was ingrained. It was just a part of life, right? Mm -hmm. You've got a generation now that, and I see it with my boys who are a generation or two behind you, that they are already able to figure stuff out before, before I am. But then I juxtapose that with like this industrial approach to process and everything that the department or, yeah. you know, the IC brings in where it takes five years for a clearance or it takes nine months for a job offer to be approved to then start. There's a lot that happens in a world where we're by the tweet or by the second. How do I then approach a demographic and say, hey, I need you to, to change your whole notion of time and fit that and conform into this behemoth? Like, how, how do we get the next generation of leaders in here? Yeah, I mean, this was the big struggle I had during my time at the Department of Transportation, because it was really like, you know, like you said, our generation is conditioned to have not just technology be a given, but that rapid iteration of technology that things are always changing. I use the example of the first ever phone I had, proper smartphone was an iPhone 4. And within five years, I had a phone that far surpassed the capabilities of a phone I had four years ago. And my generation was conditioned to that type of rapid tech advancement for every aspect of our lives. I mean, like my PlayStation 2 compared to the, the PS5 that I own now, and the graphical difference between those two, that was just expected that every few years you would get that type of improvement. 
So when I came into an agent uh, agency like the Department of Transportation and, you know, you see all of these different issues on the horizon, whether it's, you know, new automated features inside vehicles with the OEMs are working on autonomous driving. And I come in ready to work at I was at NHTSA, specifically the agency tasked with a lot of those things. And there was one person working on it and she had five other things to do. And it was not a priority. And I was here, you know, I was there for a like short period of time. And I'm like, in Charlie Wilson's war. You yeah, one I'm guy like, upstairs. Exactly. I'm like, hey, I'm here. We have six months. That's so much time. You know, in a year, if I can get a new iPhone in six months, we should be able to make good progress writing down some some new policies based on the regulations. And it was not that. And that was a super rude awakening. And I'm seeing that with my friends now, you know, fellow Truman scholars that did end up going and working at federal agencies. They're doing amazing work, but their potential is kind of being limited by the environment that they found themselves in. And eventually, and I'm already seeing this, given that it's been a few years, they're going to decide to leave government and pursue uh, other endeavors on the outside that may or may not ultimately relate back to how we how we run our country. And it's unfortunate because it's talent being lost. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I see I see absolutely the challenges in recruitment and sort of how do we how do we reach that generation? Um, retention is another one, you know, as you look sort of mid-career and, you yeah. know, have been in and out, how are we, how are we enticing folks to stay and sort of giving them the opportunities? I think, uh, you know, probably over the last year and a half, I don't think I've gone a week without someone senior in either the IC, the DOD saying, Hey, can you help me understand commercial tech markets so I can get out of the government? Yeah. Um, that's not a good sign, right? No. Like this exodus of institutional knowledge is uh is potentially quite dangerous right so how do we how can we how can we solve that problem i mean that's a very good question i don't have an answer that's for a you on that question. Come i on. don't have an answer for you on that <laughs> i would say overall i mean i think one of the things that's interesting is everyone in government like you see this insane amount of wealth creation and also the like the speed of progress that happens in tech and at least like coming from my background, like I was interested in commercial tech. I was interested in great power competition. So much of that is coming from the private sector and then it's accelerating so quickly. And almost in government, you can sometimes get frustrated by like, do my customers actually understand the problem? If my customer is the NSC or if my customer is the White House or if my customer is the Hill, you have those notorious hearings from back in the day with uh, like a senator asking Mark Zuckerberg how they make money. And it's just and it's seared into my brain. And there's this frustration where it's like, is government tied in enough with Silicon Valley to actually understand the world of tech and to understand these two dramatically different cultures um, with respect to tech advancement and um, and great power competition. And I think, is government tied in enough to understand both and cross the bridge? And then also, you have these people who are working in government who are making, I mean, their government salaries and like the mission is very important and that's why so many people go into government. But it's also like, I was working on tech when I was with the government. And for me, at least, there was almost this realization that I could probably do more good outside the government than I could inside the government. Because there's this intersection of public and private where the government needs to leverage the private sector more so and to a greater degree than they're doing right now. Because the private sector has a lot of the expertise and also has the products that are going to potentially help us win 
in great power competition moving forward. So in the government, I could potentially inform policymakers about what's happening in different areas of tech um, and help them better understand the problem. But if you want to be more of an operator on the ground, there is there is a benefit to leaving government and being on the private side of things and actually being an operator who's helping to advance things forward. Um, and especially if you do sit on this intersection of public and private, you can be doing things that are directly um, directly benefiting the mission and directly benefiting the IC or be benefiting the DOD, but you're going to be doing it on the private on the private side of things. Um, you know, I want to pivot a little bit, you know, I recognize it's easy to sort of dunk on on DOD and the IC, and I spent a fair, fair amount of time doing that. Uh, let's expand it, though, right? Like, let's let's do a little equal opportunity shit talking. Um, Talking about your experience in NATO and your optimism uh, on the venture fund that's coming and their ability to operationalize it and draw an outcome. Um, so I would say one of the benefits of the NATO Innovation Fund is that it's actually going to be outside of NATO. I think so. NATO is helping to ramp up this. It's a very nice way to say that. No, that's great. That's I. I, I I will take a note of having that. spent time in the U.S. government and understanding the complexities and some of the challenges of the bureaucracy that happen in U.S. government organizations. I can say that international government organizations have even more of a challenge that I was not necessarily expecting before I went there, because you're obviously dealing with, in NATO's case, uh, 30 allies and who all have their own governments back at home and who all have their own agendas when it comes to NATO. Um, so the NATO Innovation Fund will be set up outside of NATO. It's a umbrella fund that will have multiple sub funds underneath it. But the first sub fund that's launching is a billion euro fund investing in early stage dual use deep tech. I would say so. Twenty two uh, allies have politically committed to being LPs in the fund. The fund is probably not going to actually start making investments until Q4 of 2023, if not Q1 of 2024. I would say that my hesitancy in terms of how effective it'll be will be first and foremost, um, it's not a ton of money. So a billion euros over 15 years, the investment period is 15 years, is like not a lot, especially when it comes to deep tech investing. Um, and the idea was that it was going to be patient capital. And it, uh, the, all, the idea is also that it's just a first step. But a billion, a billion euros over 15 years is not a ton. Um, so that's, that's one aspect of it. Another aspect of, of it is the European innovation ecosystem has not been incredibly strong as opposed like compared to the US or the Chinese innovation ecosystems and i think that some of that comes from domestic regulation in europe and just the culture in europe and for the nif the 22 allies who have signed on to blps are all european nations and there's some restrictions on direct and indirect investments where essentially all the all the investments from the nif will be into europe um and i think that there there might need to be a reckoning within um, with some countries in Europe in terms of maybe we are preventing these innovation ecosystems from being incredibly vibrant because of our own domestic regulation. Over bureaucratizing. Over bureaucratizing. We had a meeting with um, with a startup founder 
who is from Germany. And like, so he, he does, uh, he does space, a space startup. And like, even launch is just incredibly difficult because there's no, there's so many regulations and there's so many limitations where you're spending so much time and energy and effort just trying to figure out how you can even test your technology. So I think that like the, one of my main concerns, like the devil's all in the details in terms of like who actually gets hired um, into the senior management team and how do they actually deploy the investments. But I think that there might be a larger structural issue when it comes to, in general, European domestic regulation potentially um, not enabling these startups to be incredibly successful. Yeah, I mean, there's a, uh, you know, we talk about overcomplicating uh, an innovation sort of ecosystem. Yeah. Right. That sounds a lot like the current Department of Defense innovation ecosystem right now where, right, I've got what, a hundred different organizations with no sort of unity of command and no clarity on what's a front door, what's a side door. How do you sort of see that? Do you see a parallel? Are there opportunities maybe for conversations to start to learn? I guess that would assume that DOD's learned, but... Yeah, and there are people in there that have learned. Um, A lot of it is, you know, you want to keep a certain continuity between administrations as well, which is an issue across all the agencies, right? You know, these are the initiatives when DIU was initially created. How did that change in the next administration? How how is that going to continue to change? So you want to have that focus of thought and uh, leadership that you can actually get something done because it's not going to happen overnight. But um, I, I, I was remembering something that James Cross put out um, in our internal SVDG Slack at one point where he was, was a map of all the different innovation uh, agencies and just within DOD. And the thought was essentially, you know, if this was the private market and all of these were separate companies trying to accomplish a similar thing, someone would have lost, someone would have won, perhaps a couple would have merged. Yep. There would have been focus yep. and consolidation based on the actual resor- results normal, normal that they were market behaviors. Yeah. 100%. You don't see that inside uh, a government agency because things, the incentive structure is not lined up that way. Yeah. Um, but the, the thing that, you know, to, to not trash talk completely, right? There are so many good, talented, well-meaning people across all of those agencies, and there are small wins amongst all of the innovation units. If there could just be some more leadership from the top down to say, these are this is what we're trying to accomplish. All hey, all of these different innovation units. This is how you fit into the bigger story that we're trying to tell the American people. This is how you fit into the things that we're trying to accomplish for our country, and, and actually give them the incentive structure to do those things. Yeah. That might mean some of these innovation units go away. That might mean some of them merge. That might mean the reporting structure of you know what DIU's role in the larger ecosystem is changes. But something's got to give um, because what we don't want to do is have all of these different efforts for nothing um, and waste the, again, going back to our earlier conversation, waste the talents of the people that eventually are going to give up. Yeah. So here's my, we got two questions left. Um, softballs. These are, these are super easy questions. Um, I'm going to ask each of you, I'm going to go Sarah first though, because I see a nervous chuckle, uh, <laughs> right? If you, if you were pitching somebody to, to join the government right now and come into sort of defense tech, whether it's in, in the government or in, you know, a quasi-government organization like a prime or something, but actually get into national security tech right now. Um, what would you tell them? Why? What's the pitch? I guess I would I would I would do twofold. First and foremost, it would be the mission where I think and I think that's why like 
anyone who joins the IC or, or joins the DOD or goes into um, some organization that's at the intersection of national security and tech, the generally the reason why they do it is because of the mission. There's not anyone who joins the government or goes into the DOD because they want to make money because that's, that's not the way to, to do Congress it. For. Yeah, that's, that's it's a joke. Hey, uh, it's just like there's there's no way that you're going to come out ahead if you do that. Um, so I think like first and foremost, you have to be interested in the mission and you have to be passionate about national security or defense. Um, and I guess like patriotic in terms of wanting to see the U.S. and its allies win and be um, and maintain their uh, technical dominance. Um, so I would say that that's part of it. I would also say that there's almost never been a time, at least in recent history, when sitting at the intersection of national security and tech has been more important. You because. stole my answer. I was, I was so I'm like, I have a different answer. It's going to be great. I mean, Go when on. you think about great power competition now and moving forward, the two major players are obviously the U.S. and China. And one major function of this great power competition is in tech competition. And it's not even just military tech. A lot of it is commercial tech. A lot of it is it's like who's going to succeed in AI? Who's going to... um take advantage of uh, advancements in quantum, who is going to take advantage of advancements in cybersecurity. Um, so I would say that, like, not only is the mission incredibly interesting and important, but like, if you want to get into it, now's the time because it's important now, it's gaining importance, and it's only going to be, it's going to be probably one of the most important issues over the next decade. It's a damn good answer. Ditto. Well, follow that. Yeah. <laughs> Now, I was my, my main point was going to be about the timing, that this is a very special point in time right now where sort of all of the stars have aligned across, um, you know, a bunch of these different tech areas, whether it's AI, you're seeing that with the whole chat GPT blowing up and Google getting reinvigorated into that space or um, literal outer space in terms of the prevalence of all of these launch companies and in space services and where, where that's I going to bring up the balloons. All of these the balloons. The, the, yeah. the, the, I don't want to date date this, but yeah, the the, the incoming balloon alien invasion. Like okay. you you, you want to <laughs> these fighter pilots finally getting to shoot something down. Like it's it's an exciting time. No, um, <laughs> this is this is really a a special moment now where the people that are actively engaged in this industry at this time, the intersection of emerging tech and national security are really going to be making very important decisions that will have lasting ramifications for years and years to come. Yeah. And as a as a young, I'll say Gen Z person um, who was, you know, conditioned to grow up to want to make a difference and actually have an impact and not just be a cog in a, a larger machine. The thing that drew me in and the thing that I would tell other people who are maybe interested is getting in right now will mean that you actually have an impact. Yeah. You know, this is this is the time. The time is now to actually have some importance and do something that will outlive you. And the the legacy and the, you know, self-importance, I don't not not to make it like a, you know, I don't know what the right word is, but um, you know, the idea that you're going to do something that actually matters yeah. is something that is very attractive to get behind. And yeah, maybe the money's not great if you go in at, at, at the, you know, if you go in from the government side at first, but 
there's plenty of money in this industry to go around. Eventually, this is what I'm telling myself. Eventually, you'll find it. Um, it'll come to you if you if you work hard enough. But you you can't buy the influence and the impact. And that's a special moment for the here yeah. and the now. It's a great answer. Um, so last question has nothing to do with anything we've just talked about. Oh, thank uh, goodness. This is so heavy, Tyler. Yeah. No, got to got to get into some, it up. I know deep stuff yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> No, so like I said, I, I I use this line at the end of every one of these, right? I've been told by the handlers that the same last question is good for show, uh, show structure. My favorite pizza toppies, topping is anchovies. Yeah. It's an That's interesting... It's <laughs> absolute character flaw. Um, is that not the question? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we talk about sort of, you know, how to, how to think about careers in national security and sort of what we're all doing um, on a personal level, sort of. When you when you achieve success, right? And when you you hang up the the proverbial boots and you've sort of done enough, like, what's it look like? Where do you where do you want to be? I always talk about, you know, hey, I want to be in some some mountain valley with a river running through the backyard, a bunch of land, right? Little outdoor kitchen, just kind of hanging out. What's uh what's that look like? We'll go Dylan first and then Sarah. So I think I'd like to be probably hopping from like cruise ship to cruise ship. Um I'm trying to, you know, there's there's not that much, <laughs> there's not that answer. much time, you know, I'm assuming I'm like 90 before I actually get to this point. Um, but I, I, I want to see a lot of places and I didn't get the opportunity to go find myself in South America, unfortunately, in between <laughs> now and that on account of COVID. Um, but I'd like to see a lot of places in a short amount of time and also have some nice margaritas on a pool deck. I'll stay in the, the sweet section, of course, so I don't have to deal with like, you know, the regular people. <laughs> the <common laughs> yeah, because at that point, that'll be just, you know. Uh, a nuisance but yeah no i I'd, I'd like to and, and the folks i work with that are um that have been on navy ships like cringe when i say this but like i don't know there's something fun and magical about the voyage of getting to see a bunch of different places when you're on a cruise ship so yeah. that's uh that's how i'll spend time i will not have a mortgage or rent payments it'll just be start calling you one, all you can eat it's, it'll be great that's that's my plan I like there's, it. A, there's a facebook employee that actually recently did this they bought like a year-long subscription to a cruise yeah so they'll just travel around the world for a year. Honestly, Star Starlink Internet, going relating this back to our, our yeah. earlier conversation, really changed the game for that. Take it anywhere. Before yeah. it was like, ah, oh, I would I'd like to do that, but how am I gonna watch The Last of Us if I'm out in the yeah. middle of the ocean? It's like but, Frank Frank's Red Hot. Yeah, no. Put now I got I got that that gigabit up and down, sure. hopefully by then from the satellite. So I'm good. Put me out in the ocean. So he's gonna go find himself and meet a spirit animal. He's just gonna do it at a <laughs> cruise ship buffet line. You've already done the ayahuasca. What's 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 success for you? Um, I mean, what does my retirement look like? Yeah. I would say I would want to. I love like mountains and lakes and water. So I would I would want to live somewhere um, based probably on the coast of Washington, um, if not like Montana or Wyoming. But I'm also a baby when it comes to cold. So I will have to have a second home somewhere else where it is slightly warmer um, during the winter. But I mean, like, also, I think, like, traveling again. So I've been to, at this point, I've been to 54 countries and lived abroad four times. Um, and I'm trying to, you know, up those numbers. They're a little, they're rookie, rookie numbers. numbers. Right, they're rookie yeah. numbers right now. Um, have you been to Senior Frogs in Puerto Rico? Because I've never let been me to Puerto tell Rico. You, the, the cruise ship stopped two feet away. So. <laughs> I mean, maybe I'll, maybe I'll get a ranch in Argentina. It's a great place. It's gorgeous. Well, all right, I'm getting the signal. They uh they don't have the uh 
the Academy Awards music, but they're trying to play us <laughs> off here. Guys, this was awesome. Sarah, Dylan, thanks, thanks so much. Yeah. And, uh, Let's do this again at, at our place next time. Yeah, do it at your place next time. Thanks, guys. Thanks. See ya. Wow, look at you. You made it to the end. Thanks for listening. Hope you learned something. Don't forget to leave a passive-aggressive review. It wouldn't be a podcast without some show notes. So check them out to learn more about me, Second Front. Stay weird. <laughs>